Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number one, and I'm Eric Armstrong, and I'm head of the acting area at York University in Toronto, where I teach voice, speech, text, uh, dialects, and accents as part of the acting conservatory. With me here today is Phil Thompson. Hi there, I am Phil Thompson, and uh, I teach at the University of California, Irvine, and I too run our acting area and teach voice and speech. Great. Uh, welcome. Um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're here to do. Yeah. What what is this show about? Um, we we had a conversation, didn't we, to uh, talk about the possibilities of of having a show like this, and um, it seemed like a, a the best way I think to talk about the sounds of speech is to talk about them, not to write about them, Um, and to to make the noises that come out of our mouths, and that gives us a chance to bounce ideas off one another and say, oh, yes, but don't forget about this, or what what do you mean by that, Phil, when you talk about that? Um, So uh, you came up with this great name, Glossonomia, so uh, what was your thinking there? It's an entirely invented word meant to convey the fact that we're complete nerds, And uh, the glosso (laughs) portion of it is tongue uh, or speech, and nomia is naming. Uh, So we are naming our tongues in this this ongoing conversation. Yes, I think it ties into that great expression you have about uh, hearing with your mouth, that uh, if we understand the the actions of our tongues, the actions of our mouths, the, the noises that they can produce, not only can we make those sounds, but we can hear them. Yeah. and then make choices about that. Absolutely. Um, it's also a combination of Greek and Latin. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Glosso is Greek and nomen is Latin, so we have a combo. We're just uh, resetting the bar for geekdom ever yes. higher every moment. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I think it would have to be linguinomia if it was ex- purely Latin. That is not I, nearly so sexy. No, it isn't. It isn't. I think hybrids are better. <laughs> uh, I have one. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, you know, each of these shows will have a specific shape to it, and we'll talk about uh, about specific sounds or what what linguists call phones, um, and also the phoneme that might be associated with that sound, um, the idea of that sound, and yeah. uh, ultimately how it comes out of our mouths. Um, and we're we'll, you know we'll throw around a lot of linguistic terms, which we're still you know as teachers of actors primarily, we use those linguistic terms as tools to help actors. We're not linguists per se, but there's a lot of great information that we we know from the linguistic community. And so we'll have occasion every once in a while to expand on our definitions as we continue to use them. I hope we won't be throwing around too much jargon without explaining it. Yes. And I think that uh, ultimately people will be able to reach us. Uh, I haven't done it yet, but I hope by the time we send this out to have an email address, something like glossonomia at gmail.com, where people will be able to send us questions. And so if we've said something that you don't understand, you can fire us an email. Uh, and that, that would uh, uh, give us f- further fodder to talk about in future episodes. Perfect. So... 
We are going to focus on the sounds of English. We're not necessarily going to cover all the sounds of the world's languages, though we may talk about variations yes. in sounds of English uh, language. That certainly is important when we're talking about accents and uh, uh, the influence of other languages on the way an actor might speak their English. Right, but our, our goal is not to be exhaustive in covering the sounds of English, uh, outside of English, at least at this point point in our, our history <laughs> yes. on episode one. That's our, our goal. Who knows where we'll get to eventually. Um, so uh, today we, uh, we're going to dig into the sound, the vowel sound that's in the word fleece, um, which I guess leads us to our first digression. We need <laughs> yes. to talk about what is a vowel uh, compared to other sounds. Um, Phil, well, wh what would you say? Uh, I, I'll, I'll say that uh, Often I use a made-up term to talk about vowels because our vowels that we all learn in school are A-E-I-O-U. We think of them as letters. Uh, but the, the way that's more useful for us in talking about speech and accents is thinking about vowels as particular shapes and ways of shaping sound. So we could divide the sounds we make into these two categories. The sounds that we make by closing, slamming, interrupting, and causing noise, which are consonants, and the sounds that we make by shaping the acoustic form of the sound coming out, by simply shaping the vocal tract. And those would be called vowels? Yes. Those, the, so vowels are roughly m more open, yes. and consonants roughly are constricted or shaped or bent in some way, distorted in some way sometimes with a frictiony sound, creating kind of a turbulence, sometimes with only a distortion that doesn't quite get to the turbulent place. Yes. Um, and with so many of these things, there are those sounds that sort of hover in between two worlds, those gray area sounds. They're almost a vowel. They're almost uh, a consonant, so-called so semi-vowels. Um, so in, in looking at fleece, we are looking at the E sound, uh, e vowel, and uh, E is an interesting vowel, to me at least, in that it occurs in so many of the world's languages, and perhaps one might argue that almost every language has the vowel E. Even languages that have as few as three vowels would have the E vowel. It's one of the sort of is the vowel space. It's one of the corners of yes. the vowel space. I think that explains also why we decided to start with this one. It represents one extreme of the possible actions that one can make in making a vowel. Sure. So perhaps we should describe that shape a little bit. Right. A, a phonetician would use a term uh, to describe it. They'd say a relatively long, close, front, unrounded vowel. A lot of jargon there. Um, the E sound compared to other vowels of English, typically is long, uh, but of course it can occur in weak syllables, so very, be very short, and it can, uh, so it has, it has a full spectrum of length possibilities, yeah. whereas other vowels don't have those possibilities. And now, uh, could, you, could you tell me a bit about what this close front thing is about? Phil? Yeah, if we think about the shape of our mouths, the shape that's being manipulated to change the acoustics to make a vowel different, we can either close the front of the mouth or open the front of the mouth or close the back of the mouth and open the back of the mouth. Very roughly speaking, that's how we manipulate that space. 
In the case of fleece or e, we're making the most closure that we possibly can closest to the front of the mouth. And so you, you, you can see why the audio format is not quite up to speed here because uh, it would be very easy to show you with my hands or to draw a picture of it. But it might be a useful thing for everybody listening to try to uh, find this in their own mouths. And I find that one way that you can get there is by making the y sound. Mm. Uh, y sound, that would be the uh, semi-vowel. Exactly. The, the consonant closest to the e vowel. So if you were about to say yes, and you just lingered through pleasure or hesitation on the y yes, yeah. uh, you'll find that you'll be in that position. You could also, to focus just on the shape of your tongue, stop at that moment and inhale so that the cool outside air, cool compared to your body temperature, can flow in over that raised tongue. And if you try that now, I think you'll find that that's the shape that we're talking about. So we have a, uh, a, a narrowing of the oral space um, at the front, behind the upper front teeth. Yeah perhaps just below that alveolar or gum ridge that's behind the, the upper front teeth. Uh, and that, that narrowing that's done there by the arching of the tongue uh, kind of gathers the sound. It forces it through a narrow passageway, and that distorts the, the acoustic characteristics and of the sound. It's probably worth saying that as your tongue is rolling forward, all the business behind that point is actually opening up quite a bit. That if you were to look at an x-ray of somebody making an E and, let's say, an ah sound, you'd find that on the E there's quite a bit of openness, and on the ah quite a bit of closedness at the back of the mouth, at the, at the pharynx, at the back of the throat. And there, it's not a zero-sum sum game completely. You could close everything off. But in this case, we think of it as a very closed sound. It is in some ways very closed, uh, but it's got some openness in the back that is not to be forgotten. And I think a lot of people have used that closure um, as a way of connecting with this sound, that there's a, a, a strong personal connection to the sound in that when you make a strongly resonant E or vibrant E, you feel a buzziness in your face. One might even call it a Y buzz. <laughs> you might if you were a Lessac teacher. Uh, that's the term Arthac, Arthur Lessac uh, invented, uh, as if using the word easy, the Y at the end of the word easy. Uh, now, Arthur tends to suggest that people add a little bit of lip rounding to that, which can be perceived as distorting the sound. Compared to most analysts or linguists who look at the vowels of English, E is often described as a spread vowel, that it's the opposite of lip rounding, and that generally when you get people to mouth words like the word easy to you, they're likely to spread their lips very strongly if they're just mouthing the, the word to you uh, as a, a kind of an indicator of that E spreading. Um, so that, that's a difference. Perhaps I could bring up uh, really what the mechanics are of rounding and, and spreading. We've already talked about two components of vowel manipulation. Either you can close the space by raising, uh, or you can think about whether you're doing it at the, at the front or at the back. And the third component that you can use to manipulate vowels is rounding. Rounding really is the protrusion of the lip corners. 
this is done with this muscle that rings your mouth. The outer fibers of it contract and squish the middle fibers forward. You don't necessarily need to close your lips together, but if your lip corners go forward, you create what we call rounding. And it makes a little circle. Uh, you can see it on your lips. Spreading, as you mentioned, is it could be described as simply not doing that. Uh, it's also possible that you could use the muscles that attach to the corners of your mouth, mouth and head straight backwards to pull your lip corners backwards. Uh, that's certainly possible when we make an E, which is why you say, say cheese for smiling. Uh, but it's also possible without the lip real corner retraction to make an E that sounds very E-ish. The lip position is simply not the addition of rounding, rather than the addition of a, an extra retraction of the lip corners. Right. Um. So we've, we've talked about how it's made, and we've talked about uh, the, this idea of vowels and consonants. Where would we encounter E? Um, e is sometimes called uh, uh, a free vowel, and that's because it can be used in English in words that don't have consonants after them. So the word free is a great example. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there are other vowels in English, like the I vowel that has to have a consonant after it. Uh, so a word like pit, you can't really just say pit. You, I can only think of cutting off yourself from saying, oh shit, <laughs> you, you, you've got the, uh, the, you're thinking another word, and that's the only instance I could think of of not actually saying yeah. that I ending. Uh, whereas E, you can easily end words like that. However, so sometimes those are called tense or, or lax vowels, yeah. um, but Checked and free is another way of saying that. And just to clarify, free vowels could have consonants after them. So you could say free, you could say cheek. Uh, it's just that eh or i, you can't really say chi or che. Che. Right. So we can now talk about the history of this sound e. The e sound has evolved over the history of English, and it's not. Uh, the sound that we have today uh, and the spelling of that sound is not how it has always been. And I know you've done some research into that, Phil, so maybe you can tell us a bit about that. I'll give it a try. The, the spelling of the word meat, for example, uh, has an E in it. Uh, the word sheep has an E in it. And you can imagine those are words that we might have used when we were standing around speaking Old English. And those spellings stay with us. In fact, the, the letter E, we pronounce E. Uh, often in dictionaries, it's called the long E for that reason. However, uh, originally, those words spelled in that way were actually pronounced differently. They were pronounced E. So, met would be the stuff you ate that came from animals. Uh, those slowly, through a process that we call the great vowel shift, shifted higher in the mouth from that A position to an E position. The spelling, for the most part, retains the older way of pronouncing it. Words that were spelled with E's in Old English actually moved a different direction towards I. There are several words, though, in English that are spelled with an I that are pronounced E.
but they've all come from other languages because most other languages retain this relationship between the letter I and the pronunciation E. So a word like ski. Yes, exactly. Or mise-en-scene. Vis-a-vis. Uh, Vis-a-vis. If you look at mise-en-scene, you can see that the French people have retained the E pronunciation of the I letter and the A pronunciation of the E letter. Uh, we might keep E in mise because we've got the French word, but we also have an English word for scene, which is scene. It's spelled with an E, but we prefer to pronounce it E because it's been in English so long it went through that process of vowel shifting. So that really accounts for the pretty broad variety of spellings that you'll find. Uh, if, if I can open up J.C. Wells' Accents of English, I'll find a list here. Double uh, E words like fleece, creep, meet, seek, too many to mention. Double E, double E makes E. There are also some words that are spelled I-E, which we pronounce as E, like shriek, brief, field. Some that are spelled E-I, like Keith and Sheila. Uh, there are a couple of weird ones, like uh, E-Y in key, or E-O in people. Now, there's another set of words that started in English with an E spelling and often an EA spelling that uh, we will say like meat or reap. So e meat, the stuff you eat, as opposed to <laughs> to meet you at the pub. Exactly. And those two words had distinct pronunciations. Uh, if you meet somebody for some meat, it would have been met someone for some met. Those sounds shifted and came together into modern English, even in early modern English, into meat and meat. However, there are some accents where the E-A spelling retains its A pronunciation. Uh, Irish is a pretty common example, and this is more true in more old-fashioned Southern Irish and still true on the west coast of Ireland where the Irish language is spoken more prevalently. You'll hear people say decent or Jesus or tea, the stuff you drink. Right. And that is really a record of that merger of sounds simply not occurring. It's an artifact of the way English was spoken everywhere, but just on those words. Great. Um, that's probably too much history. No, I think that's a good start. I mean, we, we want to lay a groundwork, and people will know some stuff now that they didn't know before. Um, and hopefully they'll check the Wikipedia entries and tell us when we're wrong so that we can uh, correct ourselves in the next podcast. Excellent. Um, the, uh, the International Phonetic Alphabet uses the lowercase i to represent the sound e, and I, I often tell my students that the those of of my students who have studied Romance languages have an advantage because they know that that letter I is the sound E, and similarly many of the other uh, vowel symbols are very close to what they are in French, Italian, Spanish. Um, the, uh, there is also this cardinal vowel system uh, that Daniel Jones invested, inve invented um, where uh, 
it sort of the cardinal points, like the cardinal points on the compass, were given yes. numbers, and these were sort of the extremes of the potential of the human mouth that specific uh, accents or dialects of English didn't necessarily have cardinal vowels, but they might be close to them. And so the E vowel was cardinal one. Um, again, a great place to start. You know, this uh, cardinal system I often will explain to my students is like the cardinal number system. There's a one, there's a two, but of course in between there might be a 1.5 or 1.3. We're simply marking these regular intervals as a way of thinking about sound. And I think that the reason that Jones originally came up with this idea is that he needed to be able to talk about a place to start, an anchor point, from which to describe variations. Mm. Now, here's an interesting point. I, I bet you could answer this question for me. Uh, why it would be that there's an even difference between uh, the tongue position and the acoustic position of the various points on that cardinal chart. There always seems to be about the same difference between sounds. Well, I, certainly in terms of the cardinal vowels, I think that there is an attempt to, to arbitrarily make them distinctly yes. even apart. But when you look at languages, they aren't necessarily evenly apart. If you uh, uh, look at, uh, the, I, I was looking in preparation for today at uh, uh, Madison and uh, Latifoged's Sounds of the World's Languages, and yes. they took two uh, seven-vowel languages, Italian and Yoruba, and they have the same seven vowels, and they charted the two vowel sets, and uh, noticed a distinct difference in that one of the languages, I believe Yoruba, had uh, E and E very close together, mm. and E much further away, whereas Italian, E, E, and E were evenly spaced, and that, uh, that, that our assumption that they're always evenly spaced um, it is not necessarily the case. Um, the, however, um, part, there is a certain logic that we try yes. to spread them out in order to um, differentiate from the neighbors that uh, if we have a vowel that is in between two others, uh, it will be most distinct if it is neither close to one or the other. And so uh, evenly spacing out the row houses so that you're n not closer to one neighbor or to the other makes them more distinct. Of course, E is kind of jammed at the end of the road. It uh, doesn't have far to, anywhere to go. Really. Uh, very little room for it to go. I would say North American English that we both speak, E isn't as extreme as it could be um, yes. when you compare it to E in other languages and other accents of English, uh, E can certainly be what I, I, I tend to say is tighter, uh, closer to that uh, gum ridge, so the, the gap is narrower, making a more intense sounding E. Um, I grew up in a bilingual French program, speaking English and French back and forth, and was completely unaware of the fact that the E sound that I used in my French to say ici, ceci, was much more intensely E than the E sound that I would say in words like please. Uh, so uh, a word like easy compared to EC, uh, distinctly different E qualities. And then when I realized that my friends, some of my friends uh, didn't have the advantage that I had. I, I, I lived in France as a child for a year, 
and uh, sort of the fear of being beaten up on the playground for sounding different, <laughs> uh, highly motivating. And uh, uh, so I, I could read French very well. I had no idea what I was saying, but the sounds were brilliant. And so I understood that the importance of that intense E as being distinct. My friends would say EC, and with very Canadian-sounding E. And it, it irritated me intensely. Similarly, my very French-sounding French irritated them. What was I trying to prove with this French? Uh, um, and so uh, that that difference, e even though I had it, I didn't I didn't know that I had it. Um, because inside of each language, the difference wasn't important for meaning. But for you, in terms of the difference in identity, in the difference in the way the language felt, it was important that you use the French e when you were speaking French. It was, and I think I might be able to argue that my classmates felt a need to maintain their Canadian identity Absolutely. and not fully adopt that French sound. I'm only doing this as an extra course. You can't make me French. Uh, I, I think that this, it, it's worth taking a little detour on this because I think that a lot of our students, we could put ourselves in this group as well, a lot of our students, when trying to try on a new sound, they unconsciously realize that it is uh, an assault on their identity. That the way we make our sounds is our identity, it's our voice. And so if I start making my E's all tight like that, it's not just different, it's weird. What am I trying to prove? Who am I? Right. It really violates an important boundary. And I think all languages are uh, narrowing uh, a setting of boundaries. Uh, they define us. Yes. And uh, I, I'm reminded of that Mark Twain uh, little story about the clothes make <laughs> yes. the man and uh, that, uh, the, that we are defined by what we wear. And uh, so often the, we don't want to change our speech because we don't want to be perceived differently. And to take that clothing metaphor further, if you and I wore miniskirts, we would have to sit differently. And uh, not only would we look foolish in miniskirts, we, we wouldn't be very comfortable sitting in the way that one needs to sit to wear, to wear a miniskirt. In uh, fact, if I were wearing a miniskirt, I would probably adopt an attitude of discomfort so everybody knew I wasn't enjoying it. Yes. Just yes. as our students might adopt an attitude of discomfort when putting on an accent. Right. Uh, though the people who, who are quite thrilled with the idea of, of the miniskirt, they can embrace it fully. And ultimately, <laughs> that's what we have to do if we're trying on... Uh, the, the costume of a new accent is, is embrace our miniskirt. Um, I believe we have the title of the next book. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we've talked about uh, uh, spellings. You know, there, there, there are different ways of notating E in the IPA. Sometimes people uh, use length marks when they talk mm -hmm. about E. Uh, they show E with a, a, what looks essentially like a colon made out of two little triangles pointing each other pointing at each other, um, but uh, that, that seems to be the E for stressed syllables. And yes. then there's a distinction between E in stressed syllables and E in unstressed syllables, the weak and E. I think that that is really a matter of convenience uh, that grew out of having a limited number of symbols that one could type in. Mm. And so if you need to make a distinction between the way you say beat the drum and a bit of time, 
you're, you could simply say that the beat, the drum, is longer, so you could use the E symbol and put a length mark on it, and that bit is pretty darn close, and it's always shorter in English, so we might as well just use the same symbol without the length mark. Right. Uh, and we'll go on in our next episode to talk about that I sound. Uh, but I, I think that the length mark on the E is something that we ought not to be too comfortable doing as a convention. Mm. It's very, very true that we most frequently, in English, lengthen that E, certainly more than we would in I. But there's a difference between the way I say B and the way I say beat. In fact, if I were to say the word bead, but the last sound was cut off, B, you'd know whether I was saying bead or beat because of the length of the E sound there. Right. So when we're, when we're using phonetics or phonetic symbols to notate what actually comes out of our mouths, uh, we're notating very precisely things like length. And those, those length marks can be helpful to us in indicating that. Often when you look in a dictionary, they're not necessarily talking about what is going to come out of your mouth. They're trying yes. to differentiate this vowel from that vowel. And uh, I think sometimes dictionaries make a point of using that long mark to say this is a stressed E as opposed to an unstressed E. Um, and ultimately, in a dictionary, I wouldn't get my, my knickers in a twist over that <laughs> colon length mark. Uh, or in a twist. No, no, in a twist, that, definitely not. That's more uncomfortable. Um, now let's talk just briefly as we wrap up. We're at the half, half hour mark at this point, so let's talk briefly uh, about variations on this E sound in other uh, accents of English. We talked about Irish. Uh, I, I would say that in, in the great variety of accents that I teach and coach, the one sound that comes up perhaps more often than any other is what's called an on-glide. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a scoop into the E. Now, I have read that in some, you know, many forms of English have some kind of glide-like movement on the E, that it's not just a pure locked-in action of the tongue, that we often sort of skid into the E. And frankly, um, that's another feature of it being usually long in English. If yes. things are lengthened, they tend to shift a little bit. Yes, they're not, they're not just a single place. Um, so that scooping sound starts roughly in the center of the mouth, and a we slide in. So in, in accents like working class London, Cockney, uh, and accents that were derived from that, places like New Zealand, Australia, yeah. we get that a sound scooping into the three, into the word. And we also get that in the southern United States quite a bit. Uh, if you were to take a, a Cockney and uh, Alabama speaker and have them say the word Jesus, you'd get probably from both of them some centering. Jesus and Jesus. The starting point is subtly, subtly different, and maybe the ending point as well. Uh, but there's certainly an on-glide. There's certainly a loose beginning. I often say that it's like you've turned on the hose, but you haven't pointed it yet. Mm. And so by the end of the sound, you've got it focused somewhere. Right. I think that... I. I better take another historical trip here, too, and say that this has happened once before in English, mm. that there were plenty of words like weef, that is, the woman I'm married to, and people began pronouncing weef as weef, and weef became wife, and wife became wife. 
So that process of centering is, you could say, underway again. That there are words that we pronounce as E that are more relaxed at the beginning. So uh, I think we've kind of we've kind of covered this sound. Yeah. Um, and our next plan is to uh, we'll probably do what will probably come out will be a show about a consonant. We'll probably dive into yes. the consonant that we represent by the symbol P. Um, uh, and uh, we, we hope to flip back and forth vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant in that way week by week. Yes, so. indeed. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Phil, yes. and uh, I'll meet you here next week. Very good. Take care. Bye-bye.